0: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at Chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: VGW Group. No purchase necessary. where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's the Son of a Butch podcast. It's Wednesday. I'm your host, Claude Harmon. This week's guest, Mike Walker, might not be a household name here in the U.S., but he is the coach of the U.S. Open champion, Matt Fitzpatrick and works with a number of players on the European Tour and and someone who I get to spend a lot of time with. And, um, you know, I just have a tremendous amount of respect for this guy. Um, I like the way he coaches. um, I like the way he works with his players. And um, he's one of those instructors that works, you know, around the world um, with players. Um, He helps them get better. And um, we kind of take a deep dive into Matt Fitzpatrick's U.S. Open win, And um, he's got a lot of good things to say. Matt is a very, very unique and interesting player and uh, easily one of the hardest workers I've ever seen. And um, Mike is a big part of his success and really excited to get him on the podcast. So sit back and enjoy listening to Mike Walker. So my guest is Mike Walker. Um, in my opinion, Mike is one of the best golf instructors in the professional game. Um, and if you need evidence as to why, uh, his student uh, Matt Fitzpatrick just won the U.S. Open. Mike, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Um, what an amazing accomplishment from Matt! Um, I know you were there. Um, I've been lucky enough to be around players when they've won major championships. It's a it's a very unique situation. And I don't think anyone can, can prepare you for all the aftermath of it. It's um, it's quite chaotic after they win, isn't it?
0: It, it? Well, I actually wasn't there on the night. I, I left on the Saturday night. Um, so I, I the, the USPGA, he was kind of in the final group and everybody convinced me to stay another day. And uh, I ended up um, staying <laughs> and he uh, had a bad day. I got bumped onto another flight the next day. I got COVID on the way home and stuff. So I thought this time I'm not. <laughs> it'll probably uh, remain that way from now on. But no, I missed the end of end of uh, tournament celebrations. But like, I do uh, totally appreciate what you're saying. It's a it's a whirlwind that comes after it for sure.
1: Um, what do you remember about that week? Because um, I've always said, whenever players win tournaments, in in my experience that I've been lucky enough to be around it and more so when they win majors. There's always been something about them during that week that is different, and I can never describe it or put my finger on it. I try and rack my brain in retrospect. See what was different that week? There, There is something different. I just can't figure out what it is.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, particularly that week with Matt, um, one of my biggest fears that week was that it was almost kind of there was a, a an air of destiny about it with winning the US Amateur there, and I was re- the thing that I was pleased about in the build-up was I didn't I didn't get the sense that there was any frantic nature to it. He seemed he seemed almost relaxed, as if it, it, it was all going to happen, and it was all, it was kind of the thing that nobody was saying. You know, he was just trying to act normal and just like usual, Billy cracking jokes and um, and I just think. But it wasn't just that it was the host family he was with was the same and, and that they, they were that, that was a guy he stayed with there who stayed with during the u.S Amateur. and he's a really, really cool guy. He's like one of the, I've been lucky enough to stay in his house once, and they make are the best host you can hope for, and he's will Fulton who he, has really, really uh, good value for money.
1: I don't think people realize how much the stuff with players off the course goes into the on-course success. You have a a week where the majors, as you know, they're very ramped up. The guys are always kind of heightened. Yeah, Uh, Us as coaches, we're always trying to figure out ways to keep them calm, to keep them relaxed and all that, which is hard to do because the stage is the biggest stage. They know it. We know it. Um, The caddies all know it. The agents, everybody on the team knows it. Um, But you get an opportunity like that from Matt who's one on that goal. You want to, you know, probably the biggest... At that time, the biggest golf tournament of his life to win the amateur there, I think, was in 13?
0: Uh, Pass. Uh, Sounds about right, yeah. (laughs)
1: Um, It's a golf course that he felt comfortable on. Um, He stays with a host family, and that can really make a huge difference on a big, big week like that because the off-course stuff is just so much quieter.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think... um, I remember being at Wingfoot with Matt uh, a few years ago, and he that week he 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 kind of said on the Wednesday you could tell I could tell throughout majors over the years that he, he's different those weeks, like you say. And after Wingfoot, I've I made a comment to him that like you do realize you are different those weeks, and and you kind of go to maybe an event the week after or two weeks later, and everything's a lot more chilled. And he was quite surprised when I said that. Um, and this year, I remember the first major when we were at Augusta, he was like, "I want you to tell me if you notice something different or to normal. I want you to tell me." And I, I, and it kind of got to Thursday or something, and he said, "You haven't said anything." I was like, "No, I've so I think he's made a conscious effort, but also, you know." Yeah, through the years, the the, the novel, the great places to go, but it's not like the first time you've been there. It becomes more normal, and and I guess you, you he's been more and more comfortable on the PJ Tour as each year's gone by. So, um, and then at Brookline, yeah, he was just went through all these routines that he normally goes through, and um, I did uh, from a personal standpoint, I did after the first round, he didn't really his irons great, and we it was. He would normally hit balls after the round, but it was late and it was windy. And the thing that was unusual, we actually did some technical work in his warm-up on the Friday. um, And it it fortunately clicked. And then I I didn't say anything to him the rest of the week, really. It was just stood there and uh, watched him make good shots. Um,
1: I find him to be a very, very unique um, type of player. Um, I think his approach is... He's, I mean, I've just, I've never seen anyone with an approach like his, the way he is incredibly to me, from an outsider looking in, I I watch you guys do things. He seems to be incredibly detail oriented to where, I mean, we've read that, you know, he writes down every single shot that he hits, Um, the way that he practices seems incredibly specific there seems to be a lot of drills, a lot of repetition, a lot of you know these building blocks of you know practice, 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 practice. Um, what's it like working with him, and and how would you describe how he is as a player and how he is to work with?
0: Uh, yeah, he's taught me uh, things through this process. He got uh, he got heavily into it a few years ago, um, like. So it it was always kind of technical related stuff that we did. And I've actually worked less over since he started doing it. I think he started in 2019 in particular, where it was this taking it from the range to the course. And there's a lot of research out there saying that, you know, block practicing golf, just hitting the same shots, same lies is... um, limited so he he employed a performance director he works with eduardo with his molinari with his stats and um they started coming up with bespoke kind of skills tests whether they were based on medium long-term technical gains or the the course that was in front of them that week um and it was basically making it much more random the practice so he'd still do his blocks of technique work but um that he, he would kind of do skill-based stuff where it was much more variable and much more specific to either what he was trying, to, areas of his game that he was trying to improve or the course that was in front of him that week. And he really kind of embraced it, loved it. And I, I would not have the discipline to do it. I would find it, I mean, that little black book that he's constantly writing in, it's just like tracking like how far it is from the flag. It all gets put in a database, that all gets, and there's a mountain of data now from years years back and I mean Billy calls him Bernard Langer's love child he's uh he's just <laughs> like but I, I can I, I t- so admire him for it because it, the the dedication to his craft is um it's, he, he sacrifices a lot um and it's just the day-to-day every day there's gym work there's skill practice there's workouts there's a and it, it's it's a lifestyle it's um you know it's not. It's not just a job. It's. It's a I, I,
1: I saw him at the Open Championship at St Andrews, and I hadn't seen him since he won. And and I said this to him, and I meant it. I said, "Listen, I've been out on tour a lot, you know, pretty much my entire life. I'm in my 50s now. I've watched a lot of great players. I, I and I mean this, and I said this to him. I don't know. I mean, you could maybe say. I mean, obviously Tiger Woods is the benchmark and all that, but I don't think, Mike, I've seen a player work harder day in, day out. Um, I mean, the work rate with Matt never stops. I mean, it never looks like he's ever taking, in the times that I see him at tournaments, um, it doesn't look like he's ever taking any days off. It doesn't ever look like he's said, hey, I'll just take the afternoon off. I'll phone it in today. I'm a little tired. I'm going to do this. I mean, as soon as he gets done playing, as you mentioned, he's, no. I mean, I've watched. He, He might get a little bit of food, but he's back on the range after every round. He's hitting balls, he's going through this this kind of process, and and it has been remarkable to watch the work rate that he's got, um, because that, as you know, Mike, that can be unbelievably draining and taxing on 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 golfers and people.
0: Yeah, we we've uh, nobody. Uh, I can't remember anybody in his team saying he needs to work harder. That we're more often telling him to like put the brakes on and and take time. Um, get maybe another hobby and stuff because I, I, I mean I, I can I, I feel like in points in my career I've been a, probably too into it and not taking enough time off to reflect and things and you just kind of get into a treadmill don't you but but yeah he's he, he has to be careful at times that he doesn't burn out I would say that's more of the worry rather than uh, actually working hard at it. And yeah, I, I, like you say, the benchmark is Tiger. I, I've never been on the inside of that, obviously, and it all seems a bit elusive, uh, uh, you know, from the outside looking in. But um, you, you hear lots of stories. But yeah, as for Matt, he's yeah, he's it's uh, he, incredible how much he, uh, he's dedicated to his, to his sport.
1: I think a lot of people, I think in in sports, Mike, but also in golf, is he would be an easy one for someone to kind of hone in on and say, okay, I'm going to try and model my game off of him. Um, But like all great champions and all great players, I mean, I look at Matt and I think of him as being a complete outlier. I mean, he's not blessed with, um, you know, the size and the speed of another one of your students that you work with, Thomas Peters. I mean, Thomas is very much in the DJ and Brooks and, um, you know, this modern player to where they're 6'2", 6'3", they've got speed to burn, they hit it miles. Um, Matt originally looked to me like he was more of a plotter, that he had to kind of plot his way around, plan his way around. Um, it would be easy to say, OK, I don't hit it very far. I'm going to try and use Matt as, as, a, as a gauge or as a, as a blueprint. But how many people could work that hard. I just don't think most people, let's say you didn't hit it miles, right? And you weren't 6'2", 6'3", you were Matt size. You say, All right, okay, I'm going to try and follow this. I think most people would spend two weeks, max a month and say, I, I can't work this hard. I just, I physically can't work this hard to yeah. make the gains uh, that, that he's been able to make.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I keep making the same joke. I was kind of given David, not Goliath. And uh, yeah, I mean, I remember him getting asked. He went when he played radical his first Ryder Cup, which was probably one too early. In the, he tried to go and get the memorabilia on the Sunday when we all landed, and uh, the guy behind the counter thought he, he just played in the junior Ryder Cup. but but then I've and I've mentioned to various people that like Aaron Hills stands out for me, uh, and and then the Masters, the COVID Masters in in October when he played with um he played with Brooks and JT uh that day and and i i I was just thinking he can't compete with these guys on a on a sustained level no matter how straight he hits it and how and and a lot of the statistics people were saying well pick players who like zach johnson to model yourself off or luke donald you know the luke got to number one in the world but then we decided to go down the like to try and plug the gap distance wise and um I'd heard of Sasho through people like Kev Duffy. Well, everybody's heard of Sasho in the golf industry, have So we contacted him, used him as a consultant to try and get him up to, um, say, 118 cruising speed, club speed. And um, that was two years ago. And he's comfortably there now. Uh, I mean, he, sh- he sent me some Trackman figures off the range last week. It was like 123 club speed, which is like, That's- it's amazing for him. And
1: Yeah, and I mean, so... Before he started working with Sasha McKenzie and you guys went down the speed training route because I was going to ask you about that because he hits the golf ball now a hell of a lot further than he used to hit it. Um, yeah. Was that a conscious decision from you guys on the team? Was that his decision to say, okay, listen, you know, I play with great players. You know, I hit it straight. I don't miss a lot of fairways. I don't miss a lot of greens. But to compete against people that have faster cars than I do, it doesn't matter that I'm getting around the track and not crashing it. Other guys might be crashing the car, but I'm not crashing it, but they're driving it faster than I am.
0: Yeah, yeah, and um, and it's good. These days in, in golf, there's so much information that you can get through into a team, and, and all the statistics guys were saying, well, if you can gain eight yards and retain his accuracy, you will gain however many shots around, and if you can gain 10, 12. And he it was, it was kind of aiming at top 10 in the world, not necessarily going for um, number one at that point. Um, I think he probably is now, but, um, but yeah, I think you kind of had to be realistic about it. And I I just felt that he had to do something because of, you know, what the game's like nowadays, it's every, everybody's hitting it miles and the college kids that are coming through are are hitting it even further is what it seems like. And it just felt like something that kind of had to happen. If, if, we were to achieve the goals that he was like demanding us to get to, you know, he, he, he won't set, he's not settling for second best or 30th in the world. He, he was just, he was aiming for the top. And like I say your guy, Dustin, I'm, I'm kind of seeing this athlete, um, that's six foot, however tall he is. And I'm thinking, how, how are we going to get near him? So I'm not saying he's there yet. Obviously he's only won one major and, but, He's, he's a damn sight closer than what he was. And I, and I feel like he could compete now, you know, on a, on a more regular basis rather than just like be turning up at a course that suits him and putting well that week. And, it, you know, I feel like it can be more of a sustained competition with there with the top guys.
1: So pre um, this, this move to try and get more speed that you went out, if you were in a practice round and it's par five and he crushes one, hits it straight out of the middle with the driver. And you're working with one of your guys, Thomas Peters, and he's in the, in the group as well. And Thomas middles one with the driver and hits one in the middle. of At that time, a guy like Thomas Peters, who hits the golf ball a long way, how much further is he hitting it back then than Matt? Is it 15 yards? Is it 20 yards? Is it 30 yards?
0: I would say it would be between 30 to 50 yards further at that point um yeah i i i i feel like he was around a 112 113 guy now he can kind of push it to over 120 like 122 3 and he can cruise at i mean they the, they're getting data off the course now where he, he's at um at, at 120 at, you know cruising which is massive um for him
1: huge so Obviously, everybody listening wants to hit the golf ball further. I mean, everybody that's listening to this podcast would say, listen, give me seven, eight, nine, ten 10 miles per hour in, in club head speed and increase in ball speed to hit the golf ball further. So dumb it down for us. How did he go about doing it? What were some, in your opinion, were some of the things that he worked on with Sasho to try and, and gain the speed? And when did you start to, as a coach, Watching this process happen, when did you kind of go, okay, we're on to something here?
0: Well, uh, originally, you, you see, if, if, if he'd have gone with the intent of a- achieving his absolute max potential in terms of speed, you could have altered his pattern. Um, so in simple terms, Matt's uh, superpower is rotation, but he doesn't have a lot of um, leverage right.
1: in it. Yeah, yeah, not a
0: lot of vertical. Yeah, exactly. So that would be a, an area of, of potential. But I I, I felt that um, it's all it's that trade-off between, well, I would still need to hit fairways, but I, I need to gain length at the same time. And we we came up with a compromise, uh, I guess. I'll say a compromise. I think that I'm giving the impression that Sasha wanted to go down changing his pattern. But it was definitely talked about. And we, between us, we agreed on just doing kind of overweight and underweight training with Sasho's uh, stack system um, and uh, maintaining his existing pattern because he was extremely accurate. And obviously, you don't want to jeopardize that. So he, um, he went down that route. And it, I, I don't know how much you've used the stack system, but it comes with the app. And the app's kind of monitoring his progress, a bit like a gym program. And um, so it, it's it's like things that people have done before, but I'd say it's it's a little bit more prescriptive, and it kind of um, molds with you as you start um, kind of making gains. And
1: the spec- the stack system is heavy training and light training. Yeah, um, with regards mi- to
0: a mixture of yeah, and with
1: regards to weighted clubs.
0: Yeah, so it's it's um, obviously a shaft with weights at the end that you can put. Um, not many weights on it'll be lighter than your like, than your driver weight and you can put you can stack it with lots of weight and it'll be heavier um and yeah that that's what he, he started doing and he started getting organic swing changes like on the byproducts of actually doing it which came with its challenges um the, the good good swing changes that kind of came organically and um not so good ones so yeah, it it did come with its challenges that's for sure and it it flared up um fit, you know physio issues in his neck um so his his tra- trainer Matt Roberts was having to kind of manage those all the time and then when you when you first start doing it it gets kind of like packaged to you saying well it's not it's not a driver you're not trying to hit a fairway or a golf ball you're just trying to swing it rip this thing as hard as you possibly can but in vit- obviously things start like transferring through. So he'd come on the range and his swings that would start altering. So we, we basically tried to make it as, as accurate as possible while still like hitting it as hard as you possibly can. But, uh it, but yeah, it, it, I think it's been portrayed in a, in a light that it's dead easy and you just start doing this and then it, and then it, it and it, it it wasn't like that. It was definitely challenging at times. Um, obviously it's, it's great, but, um, but yeah, it, it needed monitoring.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think people, when you are someone like Matt, where your your game has been built and designed around accuracy, um, hitting a lot of fairways, hitting a lot of greens. I mean, that was, in my opinion, that was Matt's calling card. When you all of a sudden take the car that he's driving and just start driving it faster, yeah. there is an element of losing control of that because... You're now swinging the golf club faster. I've, I've talked to Dave Phillips and Greg mm. Rose out at, at the Titleist Performance Institute. I think it was Cameron Tringali that went out. And Cameron, Cam's made some big gains in, in distance and speed and, and picked up a lot of club at speed, hits the golf ball a lot further now. And they brought him out and he said, listen, I want to come out. I want to hit the golf ball further. What are some things that I can do in the gym and exercise and stuff like that? And Greg Rose said to him, well, have you ever thought about just swinging the golf club faster? Yeah. drive basically driving the car faster yeah.
0: Yeah. and
1: I'm, I'm a big a, a big f1 guy you know and I think everybody watches drive to survive now but there's always that scene where the rookie driver and the 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 engineers are going you got to go faster yeah. you gotta drive the car faster yeah. Yeah. and they're going I'm trying to drive the car faster and then there's those drivers that the the all the team principals say we like him because he's fast yeah so when you are trying to I mean, it's it's a. I think what people don't understand about what Matt's done is when your entire career and life is dedicated in golf to hitting fairways and greens, to then with the driver stand up because we've watched Bryson do that. I mean, Bryson, a lot of times I've talked to Bryson about it. Um, I've had him on the pod before to where we watch him do these driver drills on the driving range at majors. He's not even looking where the golf ball's going. He's just making swings and looking at what the numbers are. And so I don't think people realize how huge of a shift that is for someone with kind of the build and the body that Matt has to get to that point to say, okay, I have to be able to swing with reckless abandon to get the speed.
0: Yeah, and we weren't as brave as that. Because I would say Bryson has not only done what Matt's done, he's also had the... You know the courage to like change is is changed quite noticeably, hasn't it? Over over the years, and um, like you say, it, it it does take some bravery to do. We weren't brave enough to kind of go as much as that, but we we feel happy with where we where we're at. And um, like you say, it's, it, it's, it's that balance is difficult to uh, to strike
1: during the telecast and during the 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 U.S. Open. I mean, there were times, I mean, Will Zalatoris is not short. No. I mean, he can move it. I mean, he can shift it. And there were some holes out there to where, I mean, Fitzy's just ripping it by him. And I, I think that is also, wouldn't you agree, that is a huge mental validation for, for Matt in tournaments, in a major championship on a U.S. Open golf course where you know if you hit it in the rough, it's going to be penal, to be able to stand up, you're playing against somebody, kind of going head-to-head, to To be able to stand up and and take driver out where you both know you're going to need to hit driver, and then you bomb one past it. I mean, the bombers do that all the time. Bryson does that a lot, Brooks, DJ, all the big hitters, Tony Finau. I mean, these guys are used to hitting it 20, 30 past you. Yeah. But when 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 Fitz gets up and rips one past you, it's also kind of, I'm, I'm here. You, you, you know, I can hit it straighter than you can. I can, you know, I can hit my you know five iron probably straighter than you can hit a wedge. But I just blew it 15, 20 past you.
0: Yeah, uh, it, yeah. I mean, I re- I remember watching him in the U.S. Amateur, and he, he was uh, he was playing a, a guy called Oliver Goss. Uh, oh I yeah, think. man, he-
1: Oliver was he was a stud.
0: Yeah, and the, I just remember Fitz being like 50 behind him and like knocking five woods into six feet or something all the way around. But yeah, he so he's, he's always been kind of lethal with his longest longer part of his set. Um, but when he when you then kind of get somewhere near him, never mind like level with him, you just think, well, you, you could really do some damage now. And uh, and yeah, it's definitely, uh, I, I don't think he'd admit it, but I think it's good for his ego.
1: Um, the work that he's done with um, our boy, Phil Kenyon, um, same approach, right? I watch those two. I watch the drills. I watch all of the things that that he does. Does he challenge you guys on the team to come up with ways to challenge him with different ideas, different drills, different kind of ways of doing things or, or is all of that kind of, his idea? Does he come up with all of the plans and the drills or is it a very collaborative effort? Because I mean, Fitz, he's like a tennis player. I mean, he's got, he's got you, he's got Pete, he's got Phil with putting, he's got his stats guy, he's got a trainer, he's got all of this team around him. Um, Does he, is it all self-motivated from him? How much does he look from you as as a coach to try and say, Hey, listen, this is the direction I think we should go. Um, do you guys meet collaboratively a lot? Because as an outsider looking in, I would imagine I might be wrong, but it seems to me like there's a lot of collaboration between your crew.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I've worked with a lot of, a lot of players uh, now, I guess, and that this is the, it's the best team that I've ever worked I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's definitely the best one I've ever worked in. We, we, we all get on. And, and there is, we have regular kind of three meetings a year where we have a formal sit down away from golf tournaments. And then all this information gets thrown in the room. And then, yeah, in answer to your question, Matt um, obviously is there looking at the data himself and, and saying, right, we need to improve approach play what we're going to do we're all kind of bouncing ideas off of each other or he might be struggling with left to right putts or needs to gain length or what what whatever it might be and um yeah he's cha- he's challenged he's re- he's great to work with he, he never gives you any uh you know what but it, he he definitely challenges you because because c- he's, he's he's had this marginal gains approach so he'll, he'll look at what areas very specifically what areas need to get better and goes and then kind of puts it back to me Phil his trainer, Mabs, Sasha, what, whoever, and says, right, well, how are we going to do it? And, um, and I, I'll be totally frank. There's, there was time, specifically then back in kind of eighteen nineteen, where I'm kind of thinking to myself as a coach, uh, I'm thinking, well, he's kind of, he's kind of maxing out here, and I, and, but he's still going to keep challenging me. So he, he's, he's definitely challenged me because uh, I, I was kind of thinking we might be reaching our limit. And he's proven me, me wrong his entire career, I'll be honest, um, and continues to do so. And it's great. And I admire him massively for it.
1: One of the members on his team who um, I think has been a huge addition, um, one of the best caddies, I think, of all time and in the world, Billy Foster. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: the role that Billy has played with Matt, because, I mean, it was an odd one, right? Billy Foster could literally caddy for anybody. I mean, it was an anybody in professional golf that wouldn't take Billy Foster on the back. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when when Stevie Williams couldn't caddy in a President's Cup, I mean, who's Tiger called? He calls Billy yeah. Foster. I mean, yeah. he's, 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 he's in the Caddy Hall of Fame for me. How yeah. big of a role do you think um, Billy has played in his success and development, and what do you feel like Billy brings to the team and brings to Matt as a player?
0: Uh, I think um, the re- I think the reason he ended up with Matt in the first place was I think Billy could see it, what we could see in him and that he's never he's all he's never been scared and he was in Europe he was like a prolific winner fairly early um, and you could see he didn't get stage fright at all and he, and he would go for the jugular when he when he got the chance in Europe and then he, he I think Billy could see that in, in him and, and that attracted him you know a young a young player as well you know someone who's enthusiastic and and, and what billy brings to him, I think he's got Matt's got a lot of respect for him obviously his experience and billy's for me, he's a great psychologist, he's just never studied it. He he can read a he reads a room perfectly, he, he knows when to give the slap around the face, he knows when to crack the joke, he knows when to say, you're making it too com- complicated, it's just a seven-iron map, you know. He and you you kind of his natural disposition, along with all his experience and the respect Matt's got for him, and he's just he's been massive, massive in his uh, in his ascent. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by
1: law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So uh, the obvious question when anybody wins their first major championship is, you know, how many do you think he could win? Um, How far and high do you think he can go?
0: Well, I think he's asking himself the same questions now because he's kind of I think he feels like he's climbed Everest. The dream, he's, he's genuinely kind of a dream has come true for him. And now he's kind of the dust settled and he's thinking, right, what shall I go for now then? Um, and I think, I think being honest, he might, he might have appreciated a bit more time off to just kind of chill out and, and gather himself a bit more. But you know the nature of the tour, it never stops until uh, till Christmas really. So... Uh, yeah, I think he could definitely win uh, more majors, especially uh, now with what we've talked about with him being longer and things. I, I always felt risk of sounding like a know it all. I always felt the US Open was the major that he had most ch- chance of winning. Um, I-, I could definitely see him winning more of those. Um, and I think uh, it, got, it got banded about in the press conference that Faldo had six, so um, I mean, it's a lofty goal, but uh. You just you know it's like you just keep plugging away and um, if you if you keep knocking them off, then that'd be great, wouldn't it?
1: Well well, I think if you talk to everyone that's won a major and then is gone on to win another one, they always say the hardest one to win is the first one. Yeah. Because if you get an opportunity to win another one, that window, that door, that room that you're in feels a lot more comfortable and you you kind of can read the room and say, listen. I, if I can just hang around here, I don't have to shoot 66 today. Dang. You know, I've, I've won one of these before by just kind of grit, determination, and all that. If, if I, you give me a chance on the back nine on Sunday, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to make a lot of mistakes. And maybe you know, I remember, and I've told this story a million times, um, Tiger Woods told Adam Scott, hey, this is like 2001 at the PGA in Atlanta. He said, listen, just learn how to hang around. Hang around because some weeks you're going to play great and not win and some weeks you're not going to play that great and and other people are going to win and i remember adam he still played in europe at the times looking at tiger like he's you know speaking french and he said trust me the ones that are the most fun are when you shoot one under and everybody else screws it up he's like yeah. trust me those are the ones where you, you take care of the par fives and you're in the last group, and you shoot one, two under, and everybody else is trying to shoot 64 to beat you, and they make all the mistakes, and you just kind of play a good round of golf, and you kind of go, kiss the trophy, and yeah. let everybody else kind of throw up.
0: Well, I think, although Matt didn't win the USPGA, I felt like he, he, he kind of learned a bit of that lesson there because he, he left the course that day, and he was, think, he was thinking to himself, well, I didn't have my best stuff today, and I still nearly, nearly got into a playoff anyway. Um, and I think he learned a lot from that. Uh, that USPGA. I mean, do you
1: think that experience at the PGA, um, you know, in one of the last groups, um, I, I mean, I, I, I was watching it when I was watching it and I was kind of like, I was like, that kind of golf course, you know, the tough conditions, the wind, the weather changed and everything, and I'm thinking to myself, I can see Fitzy pulling this off on Sunday because, I mean, yeah. it just looked like, you know, it was like a golf course to where it was kind of fiddly. There were like some weird kind of angles and stuff. And because he hits it so straight and because he, he hits, I mean, that's the thing I, I, I've always been impressed by. Matt. When I, I said it earlier, guys out drive him and they're hitting wedges. He's hitting the six iron, but he's going to knock the six iron to five feet. I mean, he's going to hit it on a rope. He's going to hit it as good as most people are hitting wedges. So I know it's hard to look backwards, but do you think being so close and being really, really in the mix on Sunday? I mean, everybody says, hey, you know, I played good that week. Yeah, but I mean, mean, he was was right there on Sunday in a major. Do you think that that played a massive, massive role by the time you guys get to – Brookline to where weekend on, 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 on a big golf course in an open US Open, he maybe felt a little bit more comfortable.
0: Yeah, a million percent. Uh, no, not obviously, there was the Brookline thing, which I think uh, helped his comfort levels, but definitely what happened at USPGA, uh, I would say that definitely played a factor in it because uh, it was one of those Sundays. At USPJ, where he hit a bad shot off the first. That that that's never great, is it? And um and and then you kind of felt he was out of it around the turn, and then he chipped in on 14, and then he was like, right, we're right back in it. And everybody was kind of dropping away, like you say. Um, and then hit a poor shot on 17, and the chip was a foot, a foot from being really good on 17. So it was d- deflating that. But I think he felt that. Whenever it's not going right for him, he, he tends to like chase it too much. It's not that he's got ner- nervous per se, but he's he des- he's too desperate to get it back and sometimes compounds that error. And I think that's that's what he felt after USPJ. And I think in, in US Open, he was just going to be like cool, try to be cool as ice. Just obviously the cliches uh, ring true. Just, you know, stick to what you're doing each shot at a time, et cetera, et cetera. And fortunately, he didn't. He didn't really meet well. He did. He three putted eleven, didn't he? But that was a little bit um not great. But I think he, he he just said afterwards that they're so hard to win because he felt right until the end. It's just he felt like it could it could alter and like like as you your anecdote about Tiger, people do things on the back nine that you're not expecting. Now
1: I think when you watch, you know, Fitzy have that opportunity. It's easy to look at that and go, oh, okay, well, he didn't get it done. Um, you know, he just he, he just wasn't good. I don't, I don't think people, the fans and, and a lot of the journalists that are easy, it's easy to jump on the bandwagon and beat these guys up when they have opportunities. Oh, okay, well, you know, he didn't play great on Sunday and all this stuff. They don't understand how hard it is to win not only tournaments, but there's four majors a year, right? That's it. Yeah. Four tournaments a year. These the majors are so difficult to win.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think it, it, they they they're quick to get on people's backs, and um, I mean, I get it. you have got to write story, you've got to tell you know tell it as you see it. But it, it is um, they're so good, Anna. That there's so so much strength in depth, and. We know it. There's a bit more of a random nature. Like Usain Bolt just wins every race, doesn't he? But but golf's generally speaking not like that, is it? Apart from uh, obviously Tiger, and it's it's hard to dominate. I I would say.
1: So you're one of the players now, or you're one of the coaches now that um, you know. In your time is going to be all over the place. You've got Fitzy on the PGA Tour. You've got you know Thomas Peters um Callan Shankwin who just won on the European tour um Hendrik Stenson's just gone to the live tour who just won recently um are there three of you Mike are you going to be able to kind of put yourself in all of these different places that you need to be
0: uh I've got no idea how I'm going to do it I'll be honest Claude <laughs> I will. we were talking about it just before we came on were we? I, I yeah it, it's posing me a problem at the moment which is a great problem to have don't get me wrong but yeah, the the nature of the golf world at the moment—you've almost got two tu- two tours within the PGA Tour. The, you know the the kind of the the premium tour and yeah, then the, su- the, the superstar just, schedule. Yeah, and then the one just underneath it. And then you've got obviously the uh, the Live Tour and that, and then Europe as well. So yeah, I don't know how I'm going to do it and stay married, to be honest. <laughs>
1: um, I was at the Live event in Bedminster. Um, I think one of the frustrating things for me about um, all of the golf that's being played on, on the Live Tour is um, the golf is being completely overshadowed by what people think of the 54 holes, what people think of the team aspect, what people think of the shotgun start. I mean, I was there for three rounds. I mean, Henrik plays ass off. I mean, he played as good a golf as I've seen Henrik play in a really, really long time. He, you've been working with Henrik now, again, you you know, Henrik bounces around. Sometimes you're in, sometimes you're out, you're back in, he gets the win. Um, I thought it was a really, really big win for his career. Enough, uh, excluding all the live bullshit, right? You know, all the, the stuff, the writer Cup. I thought from a playing standpoint, I thought it was a really important win for Henrik and I think it reminded everybody certainly that aren't blinded by all the lib drama reminded everybody just how damn good Henrik is when he's playing the way he plays.
0: Yeah, uh, certainly in the first round, I think he, he said that it was uh, that round of golf was the best he's played in quite some time. And, um, and, and yeah, I think I, d- I do think he was wobbling a bit because your man was chasing him down pretty hard. <laughs> I think he- But, obviously, he's never had a problem winning. And, obviously, Henrik's associated with... uh, He worked with Pete for 20 20 years, and um, uh, most of his success is is, is between them two. But um, me and him have just had a crack this year and um, a bit of a change um, for Henrik. And, and yeah, I think, obviously, there's a lot of adversity around it it all, and it's not very comfortable. I, I think he was... Once once he kind of the Ryder Cup had gone, I think it was all, all, almost like he was could just dedicate himself just to playing golf and um and concentrating on trying to beat Dustin. And uh and Matt Wolf, as it turned out, was yeah.
1: what kind of work are you working on with Henrik? Is it old stuff? Is it new stuff? Is it repackaged stuff?
0: Uh I, personally I when I started I I did a a bit of kind of reconnaissance on and I I found one particular swing that was on YouTube that I felt was as good as anything that he'd ever had from back um, it it was when he it it was back in like 2000 even 10 there was his one three wood swing from TPC and I've kind of used that as a bit of a template um, and 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 tried to basically mimic that obviously Henrik's Forty-six. We're, we're just trying to get him back to to, to places he's been before, and um, just be like on a, you know. So he's clear on what he's doing But I, I particularly like that swing, and I've just basically tried to copy that. And obviously, I I, I didn't coach him for the lion's share of his career, but I, I knew a lot of what what he was doing and and how Pete was teaching him and how and his feelings and things. And I I think. Um, so, yeah, I've got a good working knowledge of Henrik before I started, and uh, I'm just a different voice really doing similar things, yeah. Not,
1: uh, um, yeah, similar things. One of the other students you work with, uh, certainly one of my favorite people in golf, I, I love everything about it, the barn rat, Kyridek, Afri barn rat. Um, <laughs> you couldn't pick a professional golfer in 2022 that is not a 2022 prototype golfer i mean uh the body the golf swing the 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 nine i don't know if he's still smoking nine thousand cigarettes a day but i mean he could smoke (laughs) cigarettes he could he could he could be finishing one and already lit another one yeah um he's kind of a throwback but he has a very unique kind of tempo rhythm it's certainly not a swing that anybody in 2022 is posting on youtube as what they believe is the golf swing but i love how he swings the golf club i love the rhythm in the tempo what's what's the barn rat like to work with what are some of the keys that that he does that makes all of that so functional
0: uh i'll be honest with you i don't really talk to him that much about obviously his um his idiosyncrasies i i I mainly talk I mainly talk to him about how to, he's obsessed with hitting fade. He associates all his best golf with hitting fade all the time. And as you know, it's a very quirky action. He, he nearly hits his right shoulder with a shaft on the way down and has done in practice a couple of times. Um <laughs> Tough to
1: fade but, it from there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, But, but yeah, I, I mainly talk to him about more kind of shots and w- what delivery positions and uh, you're in to hit certain shots and, and stop him going down blind alleys really. But I've, I, Kiridek's like one of, he's great, great person. Really, really great person. And he's had a really rough ride. I don't know if you remember that shot that he hit at Augusta where he fell, he had to hook it around the tree, fell over backwards. He kind of tore his ACL at that oh. time, but it's made worse for him because he, he had a car accident when, his kid, when he was a kid and he got no internal rotation in his right hip and his knee knocked as well. So that injury for him was like really, really bad for him to have. And it, he was, and when, then he got wrapped up in COVID and does he go back home? Do you try to play through it a bit? And it's just kind of, he, he's had a real, real rough time over the last few years. So I've got everything crossed for him that, that he can get through Corn Ferry um, finals this, this, these three weeks. He's a great, great bloke.
1: Oh, he's, he's, he, I mean, he's one of the true characters, I think, in 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 professional golf because, I mean, there isn't anybody modeling themselves off of him, right? He's one of the, I mean, he's be, he's become one of the best players in the world, but no one is looking at the way that he does things and go, okay, oh. that's that's what I'm going to do. But I think he has a lot of things in his golf swing that, that people should look at and should try and emulate the fact that, you know, the way that he turns, the way that he has that, even though, like you said, the club at times can get really, really narrow on the downswing, But when he's playing his best, you're like, it looks like, I mean, if there's the old kind of old school, you know, drop it in the slot, you know, all these terms that a lot, a lot of people use anymore. I mean, he's kind of like the poster child for like big turn, drop it and then just. Yeah.
0: And he's, he's so impressed when he's really on, he's very, very impressive. He's very, very talented Um, great short game. Mm -hmm. And, and a great iron player. He, they're just like frozen ropes, like one after the other when he when he's on. And um, like you say, it's not one uh, for the textbooks. But I, I mean, I always remember when I first came out on tour, which is it's actually quite a long time ago now. And uh, you you kind of come out with all the textbook tuition and uh, as a foundation, and then you see people like Jeeve Milka Singh. I remember when I first came out, and you and you see him you in know, these unbelievable like pressure cuts going miles and you're like well hang on a minute that (laughs) that's not what and yeah I I love those swings more than the uh I I love looking at them and think well how does that one work then
1: well Um, my it's funny my dad's youngest brother Billy who I've had on the podcast we talked about this but you know there was a time and when you know my dad was working with Tiger and Adam Scott and you know the early 2000s and Billy said you know what I find really amazing he said everybody We're trying to get everybody to look like Tiger and Adam Scott right now, right? We're trying to have, you know, this perfect position at the top, the face this way. But Billy said, you know, if you look at two of the greatest ball strikers of all time, you know, you take a guy like um, Hale Irwin, who was shut, took it inside, came over it and, and hit fade. So, you know, really inside and then whipped around and then Trevino wide open. Take it way outside, drop it under, and he said, "You know, guys like Bruce Litsky, guys like you know Raymond Floyd, who were prolific ball strikers." He said, like, "Why doesn't any? Why don't we teach people to swing like that? We're all yeah. trying to teach people to to have these perfect golf swings." Do you think that in twenty twenty two now, with you mentioned Matt Wolf, you've got guys like Kira Deck, you know, guys like DJ? Um, we are seeing almost a throwback. I mean, Scotty Scheffler, um, you know, if you look at the top 10 in the world right now, you know, yes, Rory's got a beautiful golf swing, but, you know, Justin Thomas is a little bit of a throwback to where the arms are super, super up. He's not flat. All of it. do you think that it's great that we have these kind of golf swing outliers so that people can remember, listen, it's not about having a perfect position at the top of the golf swing. Golf is about repetition can you repeat the move is your move functional and can you transfer that on a regular basis
0: yeah i think i think my personal view is i think there's certain areas of a golf swing that you you kind of have to be within a certain like parameters obviously around the ball really but then obviously there's different ways of getting there and i think i i personally like figuring the quirky ones out and and kind of uh, from an intellectual point of view i i I like that and and the more i think the golf teaching industry as a whole as a collective is is so much um so much knowledge in depth now with all youtube podcasts better technology and stuff but i still love going lee trevino is one of my favorite golfing um yeah uh, that's one of my personal favorites and i I love looking at all things like that and and like i keep saying we figure out how how they work really um i find the the conventional ones boring as nice as they are and as great as the performer find them boring
1: it'd be a disservice to talk to you about your career in um golf instruction without talking about someone that has played in an enormous um educational mentoring role in your life um He's one of the best golf instructors in the world and has worked with so many great players, Pete Cowan. Um, talk about the influence that Pete had. I don't know if you will remember this, but I can remember. I can't remember what Open Championship it was, but it was when I was living in Europe. So it's got to be mid-2000s. I was on the Titleist van. This is before Pete went to Callaway. He was wearing the Titleist hat, and he came over to see Jonathan Loosemore and I, and, and um, he brought you along, and he was like, this is – a young kid that's working for me named Mike Walker. And you were like, Hey, how's it going? You know, nice where, to meet you. Where,
0: which one was that? Where was that?
1: I can't remember, but he brought you to, I don't know if it was a, maybe brought you to a t- I want to say, um, I want to say it was a major and you were just there. It was, he was on the weekend. It was just, you were just there right. kind of observing yeah. Yeah. and you know, I introduced you, um, you know, Pete is a iconic, um, monster figure in golf instruction. Um, what role has he played in, in your career and in your life?
0: yeah, I mean, obviously a massive one. I originally went for lessons with him when I was a kid um, and then i went, I left the game um, because I realized i wasn 't good enough and went uh, studied at university, was working in finance and was wishing away five days out of seven, so I reconnected with Pete and. I w- wasn't actually to get a job. Um, I I, re- I booked a lesson in inverted commas. In, and I actually uh, turned up and I said, I'm not really here for a lesson. I'm just kind of want to pick your brains. I don't know whether I could get back into golf somehow, management rules. I never considered golf coaching at all. And he said to me that day, he's like, well, you could coach standing on your head. Um, he said, you could go to Dubai tomorrow and work at one of my academies, but you're not PGA qualified. So I was like, right, obviously, he he was already because in the time I'd left univers- I'd left being coached by him at seventeen, and and me coming back kind of eight years later when I'd graduated and I was working in finance, he'd had he was already starting to have success, but he'd had a lot of success in that time with in the early two thousands, um, with
1: yeah, I mean, Clarke and, and Westwood and and everybody else, yeah.
0: So I, I kind of left that, and I, and I was thinking." Uh, at the time uh, well this is great opportunity and eight years before i I'd thought well i'm i don't if i'm not going to be a golfer you know playing for a living then i'm just going to go to university because i'm not selling mars bars in a pro shop so eight years later then i'm selling mars bars in a pro shop at peach range in um, in rotherham and and yeah things just progressed from there and obviously we we've got a parallel scenario there where you kind of going up up the career ladder you teach you start to teach better players you start to teach on tour and things and that exposure to a mentor as you kind of going through that early part of your career and um, we we both know how difficult it can be at times and to have somebody to kind of you know bounce things off uh, often makes me think that the guy's who say Mark Blackburn, for example, who ne- never had that, I, I often wonder what it, what it was like for them, because it's definitely a mass- massive help. I'm sure you'd agree with me. And, um, I mean, Phil Kenyon, as we both know, he had a mentor in Harold Swash. and
1: Yeah, yeah I-, I mean, I, I sure as hell wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't have my father as a mentor and as, as someone that I could look up to and um, um, bounce ideas off.
0: Yeah, and I, I think we have that in common, so I wouldn't be uh, doing what I'm doing either. Um, so, yeah, massive. And, and certainly uh, at the start, it's just having access to someone as you're learning along the way and you can ask the questions as they pop up rather than uh, booking a lesson and going and asking uh, every month, you know. So, and um, yeah, I, I started... He, he was struggling to juggle tour life and his range at the same time, so... That was proving difficult. I started running the range, and then I was I was listening in on lessons all the time. And some of the people that he was teaching had been in my England squad, like Oliver Wilson, Richard Finch at the time, and people like that. And I I started kind of going to events, and um, things just kind of led on from there, really. And uh, the rest is history, so to speak.
1: Well, um, for a long time, I think a lot of people saw you as Pete's number two right? Because you guys worked with a lot of players together. I went through that with my father. Um, I've I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of the guys that my dad worked with, that my dad maybe didn't have time to work with because he was juggling so many people like Pete. Um, But I think, Mike, you've done an amazing job at becoming Mike Walker as opposed to Pete Cowan's number two. And I don't think people realize um, how hard that is because when you do have a mentor who is so big um, whose shadow is is so long um, that it's, it's hard to get out of that. And I, I, I just can't tell you how happy I am for you and how proud I am for you because you've stepped out of that shadow and you've kind of worked and you've put the time in and put the hours in. And I think, um, I, I mean, I, I certainly... It's been a long time now since um, I've ever thought of you as Pete's number two, and I think your career and the things that you've done and the things that you're doing and all the things that you will do, um, you will stand, you know, on your own two feet and, and go on to continue to do great things.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, like I say, I I I, uh, I I wouldn't be here like without him, and ultimately, I guess you become a, an adult and uh, in in. If that's the right word for it, but you become, I guess, your own man, and you, you, you Obviously, we're still, we're still linked, but I, I think possibly people, I don't know, you'd be able to say better than me. I think possibly people do see me as a bit more of an in, a person in my, my own right rather than uh, a number two now. And um, but obviously, I wouldn't, I not be in that position without him. So it's um, it's, it's a around.
1: I've never said this to you, but I think just to mess with Pete. I think you should spend an entire month on tour just wearing all black. Just going head to toe, all black, the way Pete does, and just see if he notices, right? Just see if he goes, wait a minute, you're wearing black again today, and just act like it's nothing. Just go, ah, oh, something's wrong. And then he sees you the following day and you're wearing black. And then he sees you the next day and you're wearing black.
0: Oh, I could wear all white.
1: Ooh, that would, yeah. Do you think he'd notice? <laughs> I think
0: he knows that one,
1: for <laughs> sure. Um, lastly, Danny Willett making the making the call, coming back into the fold.
0: Yeah. Uh yeah, have been started working with him about, well, I don't know, about a month just before the open. Um and yeah, it's uh it's been a while and uh it's I, I've always got on great with Dan and it's um it's uh I've forgotten some of his idiosyncrasies that I've been reminded of now. <laughs> He's very, very particular. At, um and another one with a massive work ethic to be fair uh, who doesn't really need, leave many stones unturned. but um, but yeah uh, we'll see how it goes this time yeah
1: it's always fun when they come back right
0: yeah no it's uh, it is yeah it's, it's uh, strange but
1: was it a situation that that you saw him in person or did you get the phone did your phone ring and you're like and you, you whoever you're with you're like you show it to your wife you're like
0: and uh, no, it was more um, yeah, so he he kind of him and Sean had agreed to part ways, and then he he sent me a couple of videos and it just asked me my opinion at first.
1: Oh, the, the old the old the old the, the tour player booty call, <laughs> <laughs> huh? It's the booty call. Did he did he say, hey yo, you up?
0: It's the only booty calls I get. That's for sure. <laughs> but, um, anyway, um, so yeah, asked for my opinion, and then um, I kind of told him what I thought, and uh, and then. The next few days, it was like video after video after video after video, and I was like, "Ah, oh, now I remember." What uh, okay. So, uh, but no, he's uh, he's he, he's he's got some similar characteristics to uh, Matt in that sense. He wo- he works hard just done, really hard. Can't fall in flat.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to seeing um, that partnership work again because you guys had a tremendous amount of success. Listen, um, hopefully, I'll get back on the PJ tour, and you'll get you'll spend more time on the live, so uh we can actually uh, do our usual to where we stand around and wait for tour players <laughs> with cups of coffee on our hand and Absolutely. bitch and moan yeah. and complain about um how bad everything is
0: yeah first world problems right
1: first world problems mike congrats on all your success it's been a hell of a year for you and uh i think it's uh it's just just the beginning
0: oh i appreciate it and thanks for having me on
1: So that was Mike Walker. And as I said at the beginning of the show, might not be a household name to a lot of golf fans or a lot of listeners, but for those of us in the instruction business, um, definitely someone that um, everybody knows and everyone knows his work and um, really some good stuff on the work that he has done with Matt Fitzpatrick. Um, it's, a, it's I think it's one of the best stories of the year. And uh, Mike had a huge part in that. So really glad that he took the time to talk to us. So we put questions out this week. Um, obviously, lots of questions about um, live. I was at the tournament last week. DJ finally getting a win on the Live Tour. Um, listen, it was exciting. Um, I, I think anybody that watched it, um, it if the last half hour, forty five minutes, didn't you know make you interested, then I think there's something wrong with you because the golf was fantastic. I mean, some unbelievable shots, and uh, it's, it was a hell of a finish. I think it was a win. The DJ needed. Um, it wouldn't matter on which tour it was. Um, he hadn't won in quite a while and it was nice to see him get a win. Um, so that was good. Uh, lots of people asking, um, you know, I, I get tons of questions about practice. Um, you know, how players practice, what's the best way to practice. And I think the cool thing when, when I get to go out to, um, tour events and look at how players interact with their caddies and you know, everybody is so, so different. Um, you know, I, I think when we look at players specifically from a putting standpoint, you'll go to a, a putting green at a tour event and you, you will see all kinds of different, you'll see some players who, who use no gadgets, who use no chalk lines, who don't have any drills, who don't have any stations built up that are just kind of more like feel guys and then you'll see the guys, the putting guys like like Phil Kenyon, um, who we've had on the podcast before, um, working specifically with his guys on certain things. And then you'll have players, um, you know, sometimes it take up half the driving range, you know, going through whatever kind of drills that that they do from a practice standpoint. When you go to the driving range, I think it's it's the same thing. You'll see players working with their coaches. Um, you know, I've sat and watched. Cameron McCormick, who we've had on the podcast, work with with Jordan. I mean, they're always working with a launch monitor. They've they're always working on, you know, a lot of different things. Um, DJ works with launch monitors, but he doesn't really do anything with them other than just look at the carry distance. Um, so when I I think when you are trying to practice as a player, you want to try and figure out what area you're deficient in what area you feel like you can make gains in because I think a lot of players go to the practice range regardless of what their handicap level is regardless of what scores they're shooting whether they're good players whether they're mid-handicap players Um, I think you want to try and look at the areas of your game where you can make gains and that's why I think it's really important um, when you are playing to take notes to take notes on what you're doing, to take notes on you know how many fairways you're hitting, how many greens you're hitting, um, if you're missing greens, how much you're getting up and down, uh, what you're what your sand game's like, what your putting's like, so that when you come back to the driving range and, and have your practice sessions, you can say to yourself, okay, listen, I drove it really good the other day, or my iron game was really good the other day, so I don't really need to stand here and work on that. Let me go ahead and work on the areas of, of my game where I feel like I can make some gains, where I am losing strokes on the golf course. So, when you are trying to figure out a practice routine, um, to me, in an ideal world, if you're trying to break par for the first time, if you're trying to break 80 for the first time, if you're trying to break 100 for the first time, um, you need to be spending, and I've talked about this before, I think you need to be spending um, at least half your time on both. And in an ideal world, you'd probably want to be spending maybe 60, 40 on short game as opposed to um, just all this time on long game. Uh, There will be a lot of times where we'll go to the driving range after a round of golf and a player, um, if they've hit it really well, they didn't feel like they putted well, they won't even go to the range. They'll just go straight to the putting green. Um, There's times where players felt like they putted pretty good and they won't even go to the putting green. They'll just go straight to the range. But I do think having a very very kind of good idea of what are the areas of your game that you can improve? Because I think so many players, they're just trying to work on, you know, a bunch of different stuff because that's what they think they're supposed to do. But when you play, you know, look at what your problem is on the golf course because that's where it matters the most. What you're doing on the golf course should be influencing what you're practicing. And I think so many players... Are constantly in practice mode and they don't really kind of think about the the rounds of golf that they play on the golf course as the thing that they should be focusing on and and it's almost like i, I have players that, that that i work with that are you know they're, they're just regular golfers or 15 20 handicappers and you ask them about what they're working on and they'll tell you all the stuff that they're working on on the driving range and in their practice sessions but when you talk to them about what's actually going on on the golf course, sometimes there's a disconnect there between what they're trying to work on, you know, on the driving range, because it's it, it's that thing. And I, and I know I've talked about this before on the pod. Um, players can get so practice-centric, just so much in the practice mode that they forget what they're doing on the golf course is the most important. And work your way backwards from the golf course. Work your way backwards from playing golf, And then saying, okay, what are the areas that I need to work on? And then kind of get your practice schedule, get your practice sessions and and go from there. Um, But practicing smarter. Um, If you're a great putter, you don't need to spend all your time putting. I think a lot of times players tend to practice what they're good at and not practice what they're not good at. And the best players of the world that I'm lucky enough to be around they're always trying to improve their weaknesses and and not necessarily work so much on their strengths. I, I mean, DJ, a great example last week, DJ has been in a really good vein of form in the last, you know, three or four tournaments, you know, the the Portland tournament, the live tournament, he had a chance to win that one. The open championship, he was in the hunt on the back nine on Sunday, had a chance to win that one, had a chance to win the live event at Benminster and then won last week in Boston. But when we were looking at what we, we spent a lot of time on his putting because I, I, I kind of think that if, if DJ puts at all he he would have had a better chance at, at picking up victories so we're spending a lot of time right now on putting and I think it really really panned out I mean I think the way DJ putted over the weekend um, is some of the best putting he's had in a while um, we don't stand on the driving range and hit a lot of drivers um, because he's a good he's a good driver of the golf ball and right now he is really driving the ball well. So the constant theme of looking at the areas that, that you need to practice and focusing on those and, and, and work on your strengths as opposed to just kind of grinding out um, constantly on what you are good at. Um, so the pod's back. I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, we've got some really cool guests coming up. I think we've got some good guests being lined up. Um, I'm going to do my best to try and get as many different guests from as many different parts of, of golf as possible. Um, the last thing I want this podcast to do is just going to be to turn into a constant debate on the PGA Tour and Live because you know that's certainly going to get old um, for everybody listening. Uh, but it's a topic that we're going to have to continue to discuss, and and people that are in the golf space will have their opinions. I'll do my best to try and 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 get those opinions out, whether they're people on the PGA Tour, whether they're people that are playing on Live. And everybody around in golf so um that's my goal and uh hopefully we can keep having great guests but thanks everyone for listening son of a butch comes to you every wednesday we will see you next week